Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And before we jump into our revealing conversation on memoir, a couple of reminders. Enrollment at Book Writing World for spring 2016 is now open, and some classes are already sold out, but we have a few spaces left in our new intimate and inspiring salon course, which includes... Live online meetings and check-ins. We meet online via Google Hangouts every week for 10 weeks for an hour and a half each week. Five real-world deadlines. You submit a thousand words, new or newly revised, every other week for 10 weeks opportunity to hear your work and get immediate laser edit plus community feedback. Each class we read aloud four people's submissions while having them in front of us in Google Docs. I laser edit them showing you what works and what you can strengthen and everyone else inputs their praise, questions, and comments as well. An insights list. Afterwards, I send you a list of takeaways, insights you learn that you can apply directly to your own writing. Live Salon gives you a live audience, consistent encouragement, and engagement with your work, a real deadline, and a terrific way to strengthen your prose. So, go to bookwritingworld.com forward slash classes to learn more and to register. And finally, I, Elizabeth, will be at AWP in Los Angeles, so if you're there, look me up. Today we talk with Meredith Moran about prolific memoirist, book reviewer, novelist, and editor of the newly released why We Write About Ourselves, 20 Memoirists on Why They Expose Themselves and Others in the Name of Literature, described as everything an aspiring memoirist needs to know in one readable volume, a follow-up to the acclaimed writer's handbook, Why We Write. Marin is also on deadline to finish her own memoir, and we dive into the risks of writing a memoir whose story you are still living. Meredith gives us her excellent test for memoirability, how to tell if your story should be a memoir. The author of a dozen nonfiction books and an acclaimed novel, Meredith is a member of the National Book Critics Circle and the McDowell Fellow West. She writes features, essays, and book reviews for People, Salon, the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Real Simple, Mother Jones, Good Housekeeping, and other publications. She lives in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. Enjoy the show. So we generally start off just checking in about what we're each working on and, and what you're working on right now, and then we'll talk about the book. Um, so let's, so Anne, do you want to just start that? Okay, we're leaping in. <laughs> well, I am wrapping up revision 3,642 <laughs> in play, um, so I feel pretty excited about getting where I'm at, hoping to do a table read this weekend. And I am doing a connecting... Connective tissue revision <laughs> about to hand off to my writing group, which I'm thrilled about. Great. Yeah. So, Meredith, I know you're in the midst of book tour. Are you getting <laughs> on anything else in terms of what's next? Yes, I'm working on yet another memoir, which will be out in 10 months. Wow. So, I have to hurry up and write it. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the topic? It's right now, it's. Um, it's called Plan B Life, starting all over, all over again. And it's um, about having moved to Los Angeles from Oakland three years ago and starting over at age 60. Mm, great. I love the, I love the title. Is that the seahorse year I see behind you? A seahorse? On your bookshelf, you, on your bookshelf that turquoise oh. fat book? No, that is oh. Akawati by Robert. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Seahorse Year has a similar cover. It's my favorite book in the world. Really? Yeah, you should read it. You'd love it. I will. I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to this again, too. But 
Um, so, well, can, let me stay for a moment on the upcoming memoir, and then we'll get into all of this wonderful advice about memoir in the uh-huh. front book. So, um, how do you come up with an idea for a memoir? How do I come up with an idea for a memoir? Well, the memoir kind of comes up with me. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case, I think part of it is that I've, I've written so many of them and then also studying about them for the, why we write about ourselves that, um, it's, it's a natural thing that when things happen in my life that seem memoir-esque, I just automatically kind of go to, well, time to write another one. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when this, these events transpired that brought me to Los Angeles, I was um, noticing that I wasn't the only woman in my age group who was having a brand new life for one reason or another. And um, so my test for memoir ability is always whether there's a story that is bigger than my own and whether... Um, my story kind of belongs to a bigger group of stories. And in this case, it felt like it really did. Yeah. It's interesting because some of the memoirists you interview in why we write about ourselves uh, say, even though they're writers, they say, I, I, this is it. I'm never going to write another memoir again. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you do. And at least one AM Holmes hates memoirs and said she would never write one. So, um, yeah, she actually appeared at a couple of the events in New York that we did. And, um, it was really fun listening to her talk about how it was an absolute last desperate measure. She just had nothing else to do with the material that was coming her way. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it is. I was trying to write a memoir um, and I'm not, (laughs) I won't go back to it, but um, I mean, really it was, it was kind of, it was um, before gay marriage was legalized federally and I was, but it was kind of coming and I was Uh looking at, um, and I grew up, my parents didn't get married. You know, I grew up in in Berkeley and and Mm -hmm. chaos of non-marriage and, um, and then kind of through this, these iterations found myself not only married, but kind of finally after, you know, a a decade kind of even feeling like I had a sense of what marriage was, you know, which Mm -hmm. I had my whole life. So anyway, I was trying to write that, but, but shaping memoir. (laughs) Oh, hard. I thought, Oh, here, all the material will be here. (laughs) Um, But it's it's like overwhelming. It's like a hoarder's nest or something. (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's true probably to some extent in fiction. And it certainly is true. I've written, as you know, journalistic books too, and a lot of magazine journalism and newspaper journalism. And the same thing is true there. I mean, whenever I start a magazine story, I always have 90% again, what I need, you know? Um, and with memoir, I think it's for me anyway, it's easier to carve the material away from what's not needed because of the test I talked about earlier that I put it through, which is, you know, an, an event that was fascinating to me might be completely irrelevant to most people. And then it doesn't make it in. It's only the events and the emotions that are evocative of a bigger issue that make it in. That's interesting. a great filter, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you're not trying to explain something to other people. You're, you're evoking it for them. Right. I mean, a lot of women have their marriages end suddenly at my, in 
their late fifties, early sixties, and for various reasons. And the fact that mine was gay and the reasons were unusual doesn't really take away from the universality of the experience, or at least the, uh, the commonality of the experience. Um, one interesting thing is that when I started the book, um, I had a writing partner. I have a writing partner, still my writing partner named Susan Sherman. She's a novelist and, um, we both publish our fiction with counterpoint. And we were introduced when I moved to LA, our beloved editor, Dan Smetanka said, you look like you need some adult supervision. So you better meet Susan because she's a grown up. Um, and, um, so she sort of really eased me through my first year in LA and gave me, she'd been happily married for 25 years and she was very, had also been unhappily divorced Mm. after a long marriage before this one. So she was very encouraging, very stable and very happy herself. So she really became my touchstone and that was three and a half years ago. And we've been writing partners since then. And, um, recently, sadly, uh, she moved to the North to Northern California with her husband. And about a few weeks later, he died of a heart attack at the age of 57. Mm -hmm. So she's now kind of where I was when we met. And, um, so we are, you know, now I'm kind of, we have had a daily phone call every morning when she first wakes up talking through these things. And one of the most comforting things to her is that I can say to her, well, when she says, I'll never feel better, I can say, remember me (laughs) and see how I am now. And so it gives her encouragement. But, um, the reason I bring that up is that, um, with memoir, you know, when I was first starting this, my biggest question was, is it relevant? Are there enough women or people in this situation that are going to relate to this? And she said, Oh my God, look at all the people whose husbands die or leave them or, Mm. you know, and then Mm. it happened to her in the course of my writing the book. So it's, um, it was a sad way to realize the wisdom of what she told me at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I did the book in the first place was that I, when I moved here, um, to LA, um, I don't know if you can see my house. You can't, huh? You just no, it's all white. white wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very white house. But, um, anyway, um, I have a small bungalow and a historic bungalow court. I really kind of having a love affair with LA in general and Hollywood in particular. And the bungalow I bought is rumored to have been a home for Olivia de Havilland. And Ah. it was was built during that era. Anyway, it's very cute and it's very spare. And I got a lot of help with decorating it and furnishing it. And so when I first moved in here, I had this repeated experience where friends from the Bay area would come to visit and, um, most of them were married for a long time and most of them were at my age or younger and, um, straight (laughs) and they'd come in and time after time, they'd come in and look around at my house and say, wait, we get to do this. You know, like they had seen me falling apart in the Bay area and then they saw me in this really nice, very small, very cozy home. And, um, it, made them think about their own choices and the fact that just because they're 50 or 60 that they don't have to stop making changes in their lives. And that's actually what inspired that that common reaction really kind of got me going. I thought, yeah, I guess we do get to do this. I didn't choose to do this, but it was, you know, given what the choices I had, this was a good one. And it's 
you know, it's metaphorical too. I mean, you can not move geographically, but make a big move in your life at whatever age you want. Does, do you feel like it's given you permission to choose some more radical changes? Everything. It's, you know, when people, when I got here and someone would say, we'd go to the ice cream store and they say, what's your favorite flavor? And I would start to open my mouth and then I realized, hey, they don't know what I've been eating for the last 50, 60 years. You know, I can say it's a different flavor. And so the answer to everything became, I don't know, instead of a pat answer. And that kind of, it's a shaky way to live, but it mm-hmm. also shakes you up in a good way. Mm, yeah, fabulous. It's the city of reinvention, so reinventing myself here is very fitting. Well, speaking of reinvention, one of the things that comes up a lot in the in why we write about ourselves is the question of invention in memoir. How much imagination yes. you use from Pat Conroy, who really says that I, I don't, I couldn't tell you the difference, almost right, right, uh, right. Was, I know Am Holmes was one who was said, you know, you, you, I really had to make sure this was true. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where do you where do you fall on the spectrum? What did you get out of that discussion? Well, um, I I'm dealing with that myself now, writing a memoir, and um, I'm writing a memoir. I've published several, and they've all been hurtful to people I care about. So mm-hmm. I'm I have a big goal not to do that again, and um, so it's requiring me to change some things and leave some stories out, leave some storylines out. And I'm fine with that. And I think what it forces me to do is get to the emotional truths more than the factual truths of the stories. Um, so it's kind of a dual process of choosing stories and anecdotes and storylines that don't require me to, uh, mention things that are people that I don't want to mention, um, along with telling those stories, but changing identifying details enough that it won't be hurtful to anyone else. So it's kind of, and the, the third challenge it presents is that the more, um, the less dramatic sensationalism you have in your memoir, the more craft is required to make it a beautiful read. Um, and as it happens, there are some storylines in my actual life that I'm not willing to talk about that are very dramatic and sensational and would make the book a lot easier to do. And my agent actually, the first time I brought this to her, she said it would, I, she couldn't sell it to a publisher unless I included those more dramatic stories. So I went away for a year and thought about it and watched my life unfolding and thought, you know, the... The memoirs I love the most are not like Just Kids by Patti Smith is my favorite book of all time. And there's definitely some intrinsic drama in her relationship with Robert Maplethorpe and the fact that she's famous and she was at the Chelsea Hotel and there are all these iconic kind of settings. But um, the fact is the book was beautiful and that's really what, for me anyway, what captivated me about it as much as the untraditionalness of her relationships and so on. Yeah. Well, I was actually going to ask, I think sometimes looking at the development of something like memoir, um, I was wondering how much you know ahead of time before you start to sort of sit down and and actually draft. How much do you know? Do you know what it is you want to say about this experience before you sit down or do you, do you use the writing process to some extent to find that uh, meaning because you still have a character who goes through some kind of transformation, even though it's memory, right. learn something, right. change something. 
do you feel like before you sit down, you know what that change is for yourself or do you? Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the uh, pros and cons of writing a memoir in real time. I don't have the issue of trying to remember things because I'm actually writing as I go. And um, my structural goal was to have the book take place over a period of three years just to make it neat and tidy. But in fact, now it's three and a half and I'm still not the character I want to be at the end. <laughs> so <laughs> I have three more months of my deadline. So I have to become a much better person in the next three months. <laughs> but um, it, in a funny way, I think the deadline, I, I did know it's a good question you're asking because the one time I published a novel, I learned how to, um, kind of draw a narrative arc. On, I literally did that on the wall of the artist colony where I was starting the novel, you know, and the crucial issue for me was how the characters change over time. So I had had one piece of paper that said beginning and then one middle and one end. And in each of those, I made a list of characteristics of the protagonists and how they changed over time. So I could kind of follow that and then create incidents and episodes that backed up those changes or sort of foretold those changes. And I did exactly the same thing with the memoir. But when I did it, I was describing a me that I wasn't yet. <laughs> so it's kind of a good uh, dual purpose. As they as a lot of the memoirists say in why we write about ourselves, that a memoir isn't a journal and it's not therapy and all these things that it's not. But for me, it's all of those things. I don't keep a journal and I write a lot of memoirs and um, I have found the whole process to be, I'm not sure I would say therapeutic, but it is definitely uh, knowing that I will expose my own um, development and changes over a relatively short period of time has definitely uh, up the ante and move the process along, I think, faster than it would normally. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Memoir. You know, and actually people talk about that in, in why, in why we write about ourselves. They, some, several people kind of say it is therapeutic, whatever else people have. Yeah. Yeah. Can't help I don't see how it isn't. Honestly, I don't see how anyone writes about herself without reflecting on herself. And the big challenge, as many of the writers say in the book, um, is there's a general rule that if you're going to have an asshole in a memoir, it better be you. And yeah. so, you know, I think the big challenge I'm finding as me being me and being a woman, I think it's more common to be really self-deprecating. And I'm finding that I keep doing that. And just yesterday, I read what I had written yesterday to a friend and she said, do you really have to be that awful of a person before in order to show that you're a little better now? And, you know, I went back over it today and I thought, yeah, I, I really do layer it on when I, you know, when I talk about how awful I used to be or whatever. Um, and I think part of that is um, my own psychological issues, but it's also a cheap trick writing wise, because the worse I was before, the easier it is to show progress now. And that's a cheat. Uh, it's sort of <laughs> I'm kind of imagining now some kind of therapy camp where people <laughs> write their memoir to become the person they want to be. Like, yeah, you already know the lesson that you're supposed to learn. Right. How do you change learn it. about yeah. months yeah. from now? How do you? Yeah. Well, I think in general, it's a good thing to have an idea of where you want to go, whether in therapy or in life. I think it's good to know who you want to be, even when you're not her yet. And um, 
I always have that, but I'm not always writing a book about it. <laughs> how much is how much of that frame is in the book? I mean, I think I think of like Eat, Pray, Love, where to me and I think to other writers reading it, it was it sort of seemed clear that she had gotten this project. She she pitched this book. I'm going to do this and this and this and and kind of gone off to do those right. Things. And then she did them. And I guess luckily for her, she fell in love. (laughs) (laughs) It's very, I mean, that's kind of a good example that, you know, that's one kind of memoir that I generally have disdain for, which is crafted in a publishing, you know, in an editor's office in New York. Um, And there are others who have done that. There's that whole genre of a year in the life of, you know, where people set out to do an experiment and see if they can have zero waste and if they can, you know, in the case of Barbara King solver, she did a book about um animal vegetable mineral, yeah. I think it was called. Yeah. So they set out to have an experiment of eating only what they had grown or grew with Or oh, they had they had each person got one thing. So one person had been, yeah. had coffee. It was a little bit of a cheat, but yeah. 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 Well, there were teenagers involved. Yes. Also. <laughs> so anyway, um I'm not usually a fan of that kind of experiment, unless it's like, I'm going to live on the moon for a year, you know, um, (laughs) I haven't seen that memoir yet. Um, so I tend to, my memoirs have been about stories, things that have happened, not things that, you know, I'm hoping will happen except for this one, which (laughs) is, you know, you could say, you know, it's a good thing. I fell in love with myself by the end, you know, Mm. or starting to, that's this is like three point five years in the life. Of- yeah. <laughs> Did you? Now you've sold this book. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so can you talk a little bit about that, even from a practical perspective? You know, um, writing a, a proposal. proposal and kind of figuring out the book and how much you stick to that. And I mean, I have a lot of students who are working on memoirs. One, one person is actually in the process of selling one in a very exciting way right now. But just uh-huh. talk about that part. Yeah. Well, so as I said, I had the idea not about a year after I moved to LA as things were unfolding, as I moved here, um, I noticed on my Facebook feed that I was, first of all, taking a lot of photographs, which I did not used to do. LA is a very photogenic bitch, you know, (laughs) very dramatic and very gaudy and very flashy. And I was just kind of, and the light here. So, you know, it just all begs for, you know, an iPhone. So, (laughs) so I was taking a lot of photos with captions and posting them with captions. And I, as I was doing that, I thought, why am I doing this? And I realized, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm creating an outline for a memoir. Mm -hmm. That was like from day one, I thought about that. I mean, I knew there was a storyline to the way in which I was changing my life and I didn't know how it was going to unfold, but I knew it involved certain big ticket items for a woman in my age group, divorce, relocation, financial ruin, Mm. death of a friend. There were certain things that just, you know, no memoirist would have let go. Um, So um, the process was initially semi-consciously just making sure I had a record of everything. And the way I did that was on Facebook pretty much. Um, I've never taken notes on my life or anything like that. Um, you have access to that material going. Yeah, sure. Yeah. For a wall. She just goes for a wall, looks at her own feed. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And then also I use my iCal, um, as a sort of supplement, you know, to the Facebook page. So I could, I could search for, um, 
Kaiser appointment. You know, I could search for happy hour, which came up a lot. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was my way of getting to know people was going for happy hours with one person after another. I was doing speed dating of friends <laughs> with happy hours. But anyway, um, so I was... That was sort of unconscious. And then after a year, I pitched it to my agent with a fairly structured proposal. And she said what I said she said, which is there's not enough drama. There's no arc. There's no, you know, this is just too plain. It's just not going to sell. And I disagreed with her, but I also knew that what she wasn't seeing was craft of the writing and also... Um, I didn't really have a voice for it yet in a way. So I spent a year just really thinking about it and continuing my Facebook feed and continuing to, um, reflect on things as they happen to try to, when big things, when things happened that felt big to me, like, um, while I was getting divorced from a woman, our California only marriage became a federal marriage. <laughs> and so it, cost an extra $10,000 to get the divorce because of that. And I thought that's the kind of thing that progress. (laughs) Yeah, that's progress. Yeah. Nothing like, as I, as I say in the book, I've never fought so hard for anything that hurt me so much, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think you should get to choose if, you know, if you had forced into write the, the limited marriage, you should get to choose which divorce you have. Well, you have make a good point. Uh, I did try that argument, but uh, oddly enough, the IRS wasn't going for it. So (laughs) anyway, so when that kind of thing happened, that was both a personal just blow and horrible irony, not in the fun way, but it was also a political issue. It was a, you know, it was, I've, I wrote a novel already about like the way in which the progression toward gay marriage affects one particular person and a family, um, in a deep emotional way. And this was another example of something on the outside really affecting, I'm sure me and other people on the inside. I don't know how many of the 3,200 married gay people in California got a divorce by the time they became federally married, but even if I were the only one, it's yeah. still something. Yeah. Statistically, about half. Yeah. So um, anyway, so that was the kind of thing that happened. Or, you know, when I bought this place and I had to renovate it and it was my first time doing that without a partner. And so the way I created partnerships that were not marriage to create this space, which has now turned into a kind of a writer's uh, center. Um, I built a writer's apartment under it and people come and stay and write here with me. So all these different coach them, right? This is a little tangential, but do you sometimes, well, I started, I've done different things and I have a homeowners association that I didn't know about that doesn't allow me to do certain things. So I've had to sort of change what I do, but what is for sure true is that I have invited friends who have done various wonderful things for me or for, you know, either by what they wrote or giving me a blurb or whatever, just being support. I have a list of those people in my mind that I've always wanted to sort of do something for. And so I have been extending invitations to those people and several have come and stayed for anywhere from a week to a month and a half. And, um, so it becomes, it's called Casita Artista and, um, it becomes a life, a way of living for me that isn't, 
is neither single nor partnered. And it's just, um, you know, we eat together, we have writer parties together and they get, they're usually from the East coast. So they know, they get to know, I invite my LA writer friends and, you know, it's just really a sweet lifestyle. Um, and this all came about because instead of saying, Oh, I'm single, I don't know how to do a renovation. I can't afford it. I found ways to partner with other people. And that's Mm. kind of how I'm living now is, you know, except for getting to the air, ride to the airport at five in the morning. I haven't nailed that one, but pretty much everything else that I love to do with a partner I'm doing with a friend or, you know, someone else. It's sort of interesting as you're talking about this and about, you know, there's some identity shifting that's happening for you. And I feel like when we write memoir, we're taking an aspect of our personality um, rather than the totality because everybody's so very complicated in each thing. Or do you feel like you're not looking at an aspect of your personality or an aspect of self that you're bringing the whole self to the page, um, in the process of writing. I don't really think I'm capable of doing that. I mean, that's kind of what the, if there's a narrative arc or there's a tension in the memoir and there, thereby in me, um, I think it's the failure of, me and most humans to be able to see ourselves in any kind of rounded way. Mm -hmm. Um, in particular, I have a way of feeling that however I feel or whatever's happening right now is how it's always going to be. So, or if I feel like a piece of shit today, I'm going to be a piece of shit tomorrow. You know, it's just, so it's hard for me to see myself in totality. And one thing I use the characters in the memoir for is to give the reader a sense of how they might experience me, even if mm-hmm. I don't experience myself that way. Mm-hmm. So I have a friend yesterday, we were hiking and she's the age of my younger son. <laughs> she's one of my best friends. And uh, so I not only get a lot of life from her, but I also get a lot of good ways to talk because mm-hmm. he definitely talks a different language. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was talking to her about some romantic exploits and expressing surprise. And she said in the interest that some women have in me, and she said, have you met you? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Oh, I see. This is one of those moments where the way someone else sees me is so different from the way I see myself. You know, all I think is I'm 64, I'm not rich, (laughs) I drive a Honda and I live in LA. So who wants that, you know, and she knows and loves me. So she sees other things, you know. Yeah, I was just thinking about, you know, I've been recently reading this book actually about comedy, but one of the things they talk about is taking and sort of heightening an aspect of character. And so I was just wondering in memoir, if you feel like you you mentioned earlier, the self-deprecation and I was just wondering if you thought as you go through your process in revising, if you kind of uh, continue to model a specific aspect of your personality as the character, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I, I think I don't so much model, but I um, I kind of watch things emerge that I think, again, going back to the idea that it shouldn't just be what feels important to me, but what is more universal. So, um, I think there are certain themes that women of my generation experience in themselves, in ourselves. And one of them is what I just talked about. It's that struggle between self-deprecation and self-love. And, um, you know, I was born in 1951. So it, 
it didn't, I wasn't born into a world that saw women as equal. And I wasn't born into a world in which a woman was to appraise her own worth based on what she did in the world. It was all in the home. So at some point in my life that shifted and I was part of that shift and I'm very proud of having been part of that shift. Um, and so even though most of my readers probably will not have been born in 1951, I think they're what I observe about the differences between me and my 37-year-old close friends in terms of what their mothers told them and what my mother told me or what they saw in their households about their father and their mother and what I saw. I think that's interesting fodder. So, um, so the themes that emerge have a lot to do with um, – kind of the relationship between social influences and personality, psychological things, and um, trying to change myself in such a way that I deserve more self-esteem and also that I take what I deserve. Mm. Just to circle back, so you, you came back, you sat for a year with this question from your agent, and then you... Right, and then right, you, sorry, oh, we dropped that yeah. line, yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, so then... Um, I thought I kind of had something and um, I'm not saying anything everyone doesn't know. My agent made the mistake of going out of town for a month to a yoga retreat and um, being out of contact. So being the 60s radical I am, I took the opportunity to cheat on her and go behind her back and try to sell the book myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it was not entirely that dramatic because um, – I worked with the same editor at Penguin on both of the writing books. The mm-hmm. one in, came out three years ago and the one that's out now. And we had a really good, we have a really good relationship. So it wasn't like I did a multiple submission on my own, on my agent's letterhead. Um, I did think of that, but I called, <laughs> <laughs> I called my editor and I said, do you mind cheating on Linda with me? And she was, we were, we had a laugh about it. And she established that when Linda came back, we would both show her what we had exchanged. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did agree to um, talk to me about it. So I wrote up like a four or five page mini proposal and I sent it to her and we spent an hour and a half on the phone talking about it. So it was a really serious conversation. Was it very different from the one you'd sent to your agent a year before? Um, that's a good question. No, fundamentally no. But I did have a, I had a table of contents basically, not detailed obviously, but your original question, did I know where I was going to end up when I started? Um, that by the time I showed it to my editor, I did know or I thought I knew I was wrong because that, <laughs> that ended a year ago and I'm still at it. So, um, anyway, so she, the main question I had for her was, should this be a funny book with some poignancy or should this be a poignant redemption story with some humor? And she said, no contest, the latter, we're not going to buy a humor book unless your name is Nora Ephron. <laughs> right. Um, so, and that's not something I could change. I'm pretty good. One of my strengths as a writer is, is my scrappiness. So the writing books came from the fact that I had basically nowhere to live and everything in my life was falling apart and I couldn't have written a through story. I was too upset and scattered and also I was broke and I really needed a book that would sell quickly and easily, 
when I did Why We Write. And I thought, what do I have? What resources do I have that I can bring to bear? Because I felt like I had nothing. Mm -hmm. And I realized what I had is a lot of publicists who want to be nice to me because I write book reviews. And Oprah was going off the air. So that eliminated their biggest source of book sales and book publicity. So it meant that someone like me who writes book reviews for a lot of newspapers and especially People magazine was a valued commodity. So I did some horse trading with some publicists. And that's how I got, you know, everybody says, how did you get these people to do interviews with you? That's how. It was basically, they were either my friends or it was horse trading with their publicists who wanted something from me. Yes. Let me ask you this then. Mm -hmm. So, because so, I, I thought you did interviews. I heard of a little bit of a podcast you did with someone else where she said, how did you get these people to write essays for you? And I thought, I didn't think that that was how you did it. That's not what I did. Yeah. You are it's, an incredible interviewer. I mean, I happen to know this because when I met you, I was in the midst of this kind of funny moment in my life with these two very little kids who were four months apart and you got the whole story out of me. I mean, things that probably Andy <laughs> doesn't know, um, like in a car ride. Uh-huh. Yeah. I remember that car ride actually. <laughs> I remember exactly where we were when we were having that conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, I am a good interviewer and when it's people who I know, I'm even better or worse, depending on your perspective, <laughs> if you don't want those things dragged out of you. But, um, yeah, so it was all part of what I had to, what I, had as a resource and that was these publicists and then the other thing I had was some pretty well-known writers who were actual close friends and what else I had was that I came up with a formula that was unsay knowable you know like I didn't ask them to write as most anthology editors do here write an essay 2,500 words and I'll give you $200 you know I couldn't ask you know Anne Lamott to write an essay for $200 I even couldn't ask, ask her to write an essay, period, even if I had $10,000. And also, um, I gave them full... So what I did is I said, I'll, I need 45 minutes to an hour of your time. And the ones who were local, I went and saw. Like, I went and visited Isabel Allende and Jane Smiley and... I remember the other, Michael Lewis, who lives in Berkeley. So the people who were local I sat with and the other people I did on the phone. And I said, all I need is an hour of your time. And then I'm going to send you a story that I write based on what you've told me. And then you get 100% editability. You know, you can take out anything you don't like. You can add anything you want. And I made it a benefit for 826 Valencia. So you know, really, what kind of a jerk are you if you say no to that? <laughs> Especially when your publicist is saying, I really need you to do this for me so your next book gets reviewed, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so it was all just a combination. It's really, in a way, these writing books are more like a product to me than, you know, there was some writing involved. I wrote the introduction to the book. Each book, I wrote the introductions to each character or writer. And I wrote the stories based on these phone interviews or per in person interviews. You but have done a fair amount of editing to kind of get them to flow in this way. I wrote them. I mean, I didn't edit them. I wrote them because I didn't have, I didn't have a chapter from anyone. I had an hour or an hour and a half interview that was all over the map. So I had to sort of tame the structure of the book. And I, and I asked them all the same 10 questions and I knew that I wanted the reader to be able to sort of track the difference between David Baldacci and Jane Smiley when the, to the question, why do you write? Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, it wasn't hard 
it's not hard like writing a real book. It's hard, you know, <laughs> definitely not as hard as a novel. Nothing is as hard as that except raising my children. Um, but, um, it was just, you know, and then for the second one, it was kind of formulaic. Anyway, I just remembered why we're talking about this because you asked me about selling the memoir, the new memoir to my editor. And so she was the editor of both of these books. We'd had a great time doing that together. She was predisposed to work with me and I was definitely predisposed to work with her. So that's why I did this kind of sneaky thing. And when we had that in-depth conversation, she didn't say, so if you do it this way, I'll buy the book. She was very clear with me. I can't, you know, and she told me all the books they'd bought that were like this, that had failed. Mm. And she said, you know, you're going to be up against these stories in the collective memory of Penguin that we thought this book would do great. We gave her a big advance and she, and it bombed. Um, so it was a very realistic thing, but really all I needed to know was, should it be a funny book with poignancy or a poignant book with some humor. And that's really, and you know, having that answer totally sent me on a really clear path. Mm. And And now, yeah. So then your agent came back and and you went, yeah, yeah. And then my agent came back and I said, oops, I sold my book. (laughs) No, I didn't say that because it wasn't true, but you know, we both told her what we had done (laughs) and she understood and forgave us. (laughs) So, um, yeah. I mean, she might've even said I could do that if she was in town, but I don't like, I have abandonment issues. So I was trying to teach her a lesson. not to leave town. <laughs> Never to leave town. Yeah. Was there I think any- it works. She hasn't gone away again. <laughs> <laughs> was there anything that really surprised you or that you really learned in doing these interviews and writing why we write about ourselves? Everything. I learned everything. I mean, when I was writing why we were putting together why we write, I was finishing my first novel and I just feel like it was like, uh, you know, pouring from one glass into another glass. You know, I just would get off the phone or out of the interview and run home and change things based on what I had heard. And with why we read about ourselves, I was working on this memoir starting to, and it definitely helped me grapple with, especially the issues of, um, because my memoirs have hurt people in the past. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with family? How do you make yourself the worst asshole in the book without making yourself such an asshole? Nobody wants to read you. Um, and just the legitimacy of the form. Cause I've always loved memoir, both writing it <clears throat> and reading it. And, um, I published my first memoir when I was 19. It's just a form that, you know, it goes well with sort of my hippy dippy approach to life that I've never learned anything in a classroom in my whole life. So, you know, learning, writing my experience is the best way for me to learn. And, um, and the feminine, you know, growing up in the early feminist movement, it was all about, you know, speak, speaking truth to power and speak out meetings. And, you know, people just like, 12 step programs, you know, all those things where people just learn from sharing. And that's what I like to do. So definitely doing these interviews helped me feel like, well, if these people say it's a real form of literature, then hell, I'm going to go for it again. Awesome. Before we go to our last segment, I wanted to ask if you, you are such a prolific writer and you do also do the reviews and essays and, and articles. And I was wondering if you could give a little bit of advice to any of our listeners who are interested in a freelance writing career, if such a thing even exists anymore, um, around building relationships with editors and pitching and querying on that, on that level for, for articles and essays. And I would love to, but what? 
It's a massive question. (laughs) Yeah, it's massive. And also the answer is don't do it. Mm. Sorry. (sighs) I mean, I used to make serious money writing for magazines and I make $0 writing for magazines now, unless I do a book review that I get paid $300 for. I mean, it's sorry, but it's just doesn't seem a realistic path unless you are a trust fund baby or you're married, you've married well or something. What about, I mean, I just, I guess I see people kind of building a platform for themselves, you know, where they're, they're going a time between books, but their name is popping up because they're, Oh, well book reviews, you know, but again, you get two or $300 for those and you know how long it takes to read a book, let alone write about it. So, you know, I do that. I do that more as my sort of mitzvah because, um, I try hard to review only books that I think will not get play otherwise and need it. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's the main thing, but I don't get assignments anymore for like magazine essays and things that I used to make really good money doing. It's just, their pages have shrunk and, you know, the age demographic gets very, very specific and they don't want people who are 64 writing for, you know, more magazine, which I used to write for regularly used to be a woman, a magazine for women 40 and up with an emphasis on up. And now it's a magazine for 35 year olds. Mm. So, you know, it's just, they go where the money is. And, um, so I'm, you know, sorry to be discouraging, but that's just the reality of it. And with book writing, yes, I write, I used to write, I used to publish a book almost every year. And I did that for several years. Um, I went a good five years without, well, not good, a bad five years without being able to get a book contract because my, when BookScan came about, um, and my agent, not the one I have now, but my last one couldn't lie about my book sales to the next publisher anymore. It became impossible to sell a book. So, um, you know, I, I'm really lucky right now that I have a book out and I have a book coming out in a year and I have another idea for a nonfiction book that I'm excited about and my agent's excited about. I don't have to cheat on her this time, but, um, (laughs) but you know, it's still totally touch and go. And I don't know what I would do if I were starting out right now. I'm not sure. I would definitely try to marry for money. (laughs) I think that's the best solution. (laughs) Um, Our last segment is called Steal This. And I don't know if I remember to warn you about this, but um, T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. So uh, we just each consider uh, something we've come across in our wanderings, our readings, our conversations that we want to make our own. Um, So... um, (laughs) <laughs> you, why don't you uh, model that I'll model us. that not to warn anybody um, uh, well I will say that today I was I was digging into it wasn't something I so much came across but I was digging into uh, Middlesex which is a model for that I'm using for the book that I'm writing now um, because it's a book I really love and just looking at the way that he uses the a frame story um, this little kind of, it's, it's not a very, I mean, it probably in and of itself is like 20 pages or less of the whole book, but it's, it's this frame story that gives the character a place where he's changing. And then he's looking back at all these other changes in his life and his grandparents' lives. And I'm just, um, I guess I was just trying to steal from that. Um, not just the idea of a frame story, but, um, but realizing that my, my narrator needs somewhere to 
to stand and to tell the story from. I'm actually grappling in the book with with these issues about memoir, the memoir scandal issues, you know, and, and memory and truth and imagination. Is it a memoir or a novel? It's a novel. Uh-huh. I, I went and moved on to the novel, back to the novel for a bit. Uh-huh. I didn't want to have to learn a whole new genre. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's, so anyway, so I just really love the, um, I love that, that kind of, um, the format where what I call it first person omniscient, where he can go anywhere and do anything and go, into uh-huh. but there's a first person character. So that's what I'm really most interested in stealing right now. Hmm. <laughs> anything come to mind for you, Meredith? Um, well, right now I don't think so. I could think about it a little bit, but, um, when I first wrote my first book as an adult, um, I was totally copying Barbara Kingsolver and I was reading all her books and I realized that she sounded like me. I mean, I sounded like her, that it was just so simple and so straightforward and she made the whole thing look so easy. And I thought if she could do that, I could do that. And that's really what got me started. And I think the first sentences that I wrote of what it's like to live now, which I published in 95, were probably direct copies of sentences she wrote in the bean trees. Um, so that there was that style that I kind of stole or that I appropriated, I would say, because obviously this, that style is about voice. It's about a very straightforward, accessible way to write and, um, and dialogue. The way she did dialogue is also very straightforward and like that. And then, um, I've taken inspiration from other books like The Seahorse Year by Stacey Durasmo. That's what convinced me to write my novel because that was a book about a gay family. And it was at an early time for that. And I thought, oh, and she never said, oh, my God, how weird this is a gay family. She just wrote a novel in which the characters, the parents were gay. Um So I was really inspired by that. I kind of, I guess you could say I kind of stole from that in a way for the novel I published. Right now I'm just trying to read good books. Um, and I get about 10 to 15 books in the mail every day, galleys mostly, but, um, because of reviewing. So I have this process where I go through, um, the, pile every day. When I came home from a month, I was just away for a month on tour and I came home, I had 76 books waiting for me. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, envelopes, that's the problem. You know, if there were just books, it'd be a lot easier. It's tearing open the envelopes that really bugs me, especially the ones from Simon and Schuster. They come in these plastic things that are impossible to open. Anyway, so I go through those stacks and I, I mean, I feel lucky. It teaches me a lot about the publishing industry because obviously these are the books that are getting published and I can tell from the packaging, from the letter they come in, from the covers, um, and from the description of what the, the marketing plan is for each book. I can tell pretty much how much they paid for those books and I can tell how excited the publisher is about them. And that of course determines largely what happens to the books. So it's a great education for me. It's kind of mm-hmm. my, my marketing, my marketing degree is coming from that. So I do look through the books. If when I get a memoir, I I don't get that many memoirs, contrary to popular opinion, memoirs are still a small minority of the books that are published. But when I get one that is good or interesting in some way that doesn't focus on something sensational, like a medical crisis or 
I don't know, um, being fat all your life and then being thin, you know, some really easy storyline that doesn't interest me. I put those aside, but I do look through them and I do take ideas sometimes. I recently read all the book. I, I reviewed a book by Abigail Thomas. I don't know if you know who she is. Yeah, I, I had never heard of her before. What? Well, she did three dog life. And- yeah. Yeah. And she published a book probably a year ago or so. And she does a lot of experimenting with form that I found very liberating, even though I don't do it. She writes chapters that are three paragraphs long and, um, she takes a lot of liberties, which I actually associate with her age. There are other women writers who do that too, like Jennifer Egan or Catherine Harrison or two of my heroes. But, um, but I don't know somehow the fact that Abigail Thomas is in her seventies and she started publishing when she was in her fifties, I believe, or sixties, mm. uh, makes me feel that she has some authority that I really appreciate. She just takes it. You know, she doesn't say, could I please write a memoir in three paragraph chapters? She just does it. So I get a lot of courage from her. Mm, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And do you want to wrap up with one? Well, you know, I was uh, struggling this week trying to do that unifying thing with, you know, I have a an ensemble script, which is like, okay, here's way too many people. And how does this all fit together? And I realized that I was starting to get stressed out and worry about the meaning of life. And then I was like, oh, look, it's kind of an existential screenplay. That's really what's happening. So I went to um, Victor Frankel Institute and was looking at sort of the list that they have for logotherapy. And one of the ideas is that, you know, people have a will to meaning. Like we have a desire to make meaning, I think. And as artists, we sort of depend on people's, desi- you know, inherent need to do that. You're like, uh-huh. Here's a picture of a cow and a, you know, skyscraper. And people go, uh-huh. ah, clearly that's about the uh, relationship between the waning agricultural uh, communities and the dominance of hyper-urbanism. Um, and you're like, no, it's just a cow and a skyscraper. But people make meaning out of whatever. And so I think what I'm taking away this week really uh, is my own desire to sort of make meaning and that it can be open. It's a little bit in line with what you're talking about. Um, we had an interview with Paul Lissicky. Um Oh, I just reviewed his book. I actually met him at Yotto this summer. I thought he was incredible. Yeah, yeah. we just yeah. We, we interviewed him last week. What made you decide to interview him? Uh, well, I I think your inter- your um, review you got posted, and I yeah. had friends with him. You know, Facebook friends oh, from the day, yeah. like tromping around when they used to have the the queer literary conference. Yeah, in Boston. Anyway, way back, and so I just said, "Hey, Paul, you know, will you come talk?" To <laughs> and so he did, and it was wonderful. Ah, uh, he's such a mensch. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. Oh no, no, no. It's fine. It's just out of that meeting came the desire for me to you know, have some of that authority, have some of the, like, I'm going to just do something weird. I'd been getting entrenched in doing it right. And having my screenplay be great because screenplays <laughs> need to be done correctly. And, um, and I wasn't having fun with it anymore. And so uh-huh. that conversation, I just started throwing in some random stuff and I was like, okay, but what does it mean? And mm-hmm. I'm using Victor Frankel, who is also a mensch uh, <laughs> and using these ideas of, creating meaning that we have this desire to create meaning, but that we all have the capacity to make meaning. So I think, uh, huh. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Meredith. Oh, thanks girl. Love-